0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to this podcast series, Immersa, People and Passion, sponsored by the ATTC Network. I'm your host, Doreen Bader, the Executive Director of Immersa. This week, we'll be hearing about leveraging media and medicine to reduce stigma and improve access to addiction treatment. Our subject matter expert on this topic is Dr. Lippi Roy and moderated by Dr. Stefan Kiertes. Dr. Roy is an internal medicine and addiction medicine physician, keynote speaker, and sought-after media medical commentator who has appeared on MSNBC, NBC News, and CNN. A Forbes contributor, she has been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Boston Globe, and her articles have been published in Stat, Psychology Today, and the Huffington Post. Dr. Roy serves as the medical director of COVID isolation and quarantine sites at Housing Works in New York City. She also serves as a clinical assistant professor at NYU Langone Health. Dr. Roy's work spans academia, clinical medicine, media, homeless health, social and criminal justice, and public speaking. As the former chief of addiction medicine at Rikers Island, Dr. Roy oversaw substance use treatment and recovery services at the nation's second largest jail complex. Dr. Roy completed her medical and master's in public health degrees at Tulane University, followed by residency training in internal medicine at Duke University Medical Center. Follow Dr. Roy on Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Dr. Stefan Kirtes is a physician in internal medicine and addiction medicine with a long-term commitment to fostering better care for populations whose clinical care is affected by social challenges such as homelessness and clinical concerns like chronic pain. He is currently a researcher and clinician at the Birmingham Veterans Affairs Medical Center and professor at the University of Alabama at Birmingham. He has engaged in national advocacy on how changes in national policies on opioid prescribing affected the care of patients with long-term pain. Recently, winning the David Calkins Award in health policy advocacy from the Society of General Internal Medicine, he is also the co-host of the podcast on becoming a healer with Dr. Saul Miner.
1: Hello, and welcome to Immersive People in Passion. I'm Stefan Kertes and we're recording this in April of 2021 at a time when over 550,000 Americans have died of COVID-19. And we're also learning that the number of deaths attributable to overdose involving drugs and alcohol is at a record high. Now, more than perhaps any other time, it's crucial to be able to hear from someone who's been on the front lines of care and also on the front lines of communicating to the public through television, internet, Radio. I'm here speaking with a fellow immersive member, Dr. Lippy Roy. Dr. Roy currently serves as medical director of COVID isolation and quarantine sites for Housing Works in New York City. Crucially, she is an active media contributor, writing for Forbes and appearing on national television networks such as MSNBC and NBC throughout the past year. Hi, Lippy.
2: Hi, Stefan. How are you?
1: I'm doing great. It's great to have you here.
2: Good to be with you.
1: Let me start with a basic question. As you see it, Lippy, how would you characterize the moment we are in right now with respect to health and addiction?
2: Well, I mean, what a historic time, right? Who would ever thought we'd be in the middle of a pandemic caused by this novel coronavirus? Uh, A year later, uh, and as you pointed out in the introduction, over 550,000 lives lost just in the United States alone. You know, it's, um, it's been such a learning curve for me and my fellow health professionals and public health advocates. But at the same time, it's also been, you know, a, a real jaw-dropping moment. When you look at uh, what I used to do in my previous job, which is really looking at and treating patients with uh, substance use disorders and addiction, we are seeing rising record numbers of drug use, a drug overdose, and drug overdose-related deaths. And the two things, the two phenomena, the pandemic and drug overdose are not unrelated. In fact, the public health measures that we are implementing and encouraging and advising for COVID-19, such as isolation, are actually the same risk factors for drug use and return to use and relapse. So there's a lot of things that we need to really work on to make sure we're addressing the needs of the public and the most vulnerable members who are susceptible to to substance use. Stefan
1: And I really identify with a lot of what you said just from my own clinical practice, working primarily with formerly homeless and currently homeless veterans. You've had the chance to speak on national television or with other national sources. And I'm really curious to learn what are the biggest challenges you have in speaking about addiction to a national audience, which does not consist of clinicians?
2: Yeah, that's such an important question. So, you know, I was writing articles well before the pandemic on various health issues, but mostly about substance use disorders, mostly about opioids. And then I was talking about alcohol and other addictions before COVID-19. You learn pretty early on that writing for mainstream media outlets and communicating to mainstream media outlets is very different from like scientific writing, something that you and I and our colleagues are very familiar with, right? So writing an article for say the New England Journal of Medicine or, or, you know, JAMA is very different from writing for say like Forbes, which I do, or, or the New York Times or the Atlantic. And I don't like using the phrase dumbing down language. In fact, I think it's a really important skill, which I'm still learning, about how to communicate effectively and clearly in a way that makes sense to, like, say, my mom and dad, my relatives, my next-door neighbors, people who are not in the medical field, but people who are smart, but people who are really curious and and they want help, and who are confused by what they're seeing online and all this misinformation and conflicting information that they're getting, say, from politicians versus online. So I've worked really hard to obviously stay up to speed with the evolving clinical data and, and scientific literature, and then try to translate that in a way that's digestible and understandable. It takes lots of practice to be honest, but I think I'm getting better at it today than I was, i say five years ago.
1: One of the things that most of us who are professionally involved in the care of people who might have substance use disorder or at least thinking about substance use is the matter of stigma. And if I was a TV newscaster and said, Dr. Roy, what is stigma? How do I know when I see it? What would you say?
2: Yeah, I'm really glad you asked that because, you know, we really use the word, especially in our circle, Stefan, we use this word stigma a lot because we encounter it with our patients every single day. You know, one of our fellow addiction colleagues, Dr. Shinazo Cunningham at Montefiore Albert Einstein in New York had said when she used the, hears the word stigma, she just calls it harm. Because that's what it is. I mean, the definition of stigma is any type of behavior or attribute that's socially discrediting, right? So it's any kind of like words, labels, behaviors that make people feel bad, feel ashamed. And the sad reality is that most people with substance use disorders, drug, alcohol addictions, that's what they feel. It's stigma, it's shame, it's guilt. It's judgment but from our own medical profession, uh, as well as society at large. And that stigma is what prevents people with substance disorders from getting the treatment, the evidence-based treatment that they need and deserve.
1: I want to mention, we're going to bring this back to COVID in a moment, but I wanted to follow up on that a tiny bit, uh, Lippi. One thing that I can imagine someone saying is that they have a family member who has gone through recovery and may speak of themselves in very stigmatizing uh, terms. They may say, well, I'm an addict. I'm an addict for life, uh, but I've made it, you know, 120 days. I just had to realize that I had harmed everybody in my life and now I need to make amends. It might be 12-step language that a person is using. And if if that comes back to you from a, a journalist, how do you handle that?
2: So, yeah. So let me just say, uh, yes, I've I've heard this countless times from patients, right? I'll have patients self-identify as, hey, you know, Dr. Roy, I'm an addict. I've done all these wrong things, bad things, but I'm trying to get my life in order. So I never correct a patient who self-identifies. And in large part, because if you think about it, that's what they've always been called, right? In our addiction community, when they went to rehab, they went to the hospitals, everyone labeled them as an addict. So that's what they are used to hearing. But we now have data showing that when we use stigmatizing terms such as addict, alcoholic, junkie, lush, and all these other derogatory terms that we use to describe people with a disease, this chronic disease, um, studies show that people... Feel They perceive more discrimination. They're less likely to get care. And healthcare professionals like you and I, when we hear and use these terms, we spend less time in clinic and we label our, these patients as manipulative, angry, unmotivated, violent, and spend less time in clinic. So all of that adds up to suboptimal care. The thing is that most of my patients and the public and journalists don't know this data right? They think, oh, it's just PC. Uh, Oh, Dr. Roy is just being politically correct. No, we actually have data showing that stigmatizing phrases are harmful. So that's why, I mean, you've already heard this expression that words matter. Well, particularly when it comes to uh, addiction and people with substance disorders, words can literally be life or death.
1: Have you had journalists who are either highly receptive to this message or completely skeptical of what you're saying?
2: I will quote my one of my favorite comedians, Chris Rock. It's all in the delivery. So if I come at a journalist and say, oh my God, I can't believe you're using such stigmatizing terms. Don't you know that's harmful? Um, I don't think they'll receive that very well. But if I instead say... And I very honestly admit that, you know what, I, I also used to use the term addict, a substance abuser, drug abuse, all throughout my med school and residency because I just didn't know any better. That's how I was taught. But now I've come to learn, actually, that when these certain terms can actually be pretty harmful, um, so I actually no longer use them. And so in the addiction medicine world, we're actually trying to avoid using these stigmatizing terms. I just say it like that. And most, vast majority, Stefan, uh, reporters, journalists, are like, oh, I actually had no idea. And so you slowly see the change. Uh, that said, you still look at, you see articles all the time. To tie it back to what's happening right now in real time, today, Hunter Biden, the a son of uh, President Joe Biden, just released his book, Beautiful Things, where he details his own struggles with cocaine and, 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 and alcohol. And the several articles now coming out about that. And almost every single one talks about his substance abuse and how he's an addict. So we still have a long way to go, Stefan, but I think I do feel that things are getting better.
1: The emergence of that book comes right around the same time as another book by uh, Dr. Carl Hart of Columbia University. And the issue he raises is should we discuss drug use as something that is always bad? Because When I've been on small local TV shows, I don't know how to discuss drug use without implying that I'm with the program and agree it's always bad. And my confession to you and to our listeners is that I'm not sure it is always bad. So when you're on national television, do you ever find yourself backed into a corner of thinking, you know what, maybe I should acknowledge that not every single kind of drug use is bad. Does that ever come up?
2: So that specific form of way of phrasing it has not come up, but the topic of just uh, drug use, not, let's not even talk about addiction, just to be clear to the listeners, addiction isn't drug use. Addiction is something very specific. It's when any type of behavior or substance use, for instance, behavior action adversely impairs your day-to-day living. So I sometimes joke about being, oh, I'm addicted to chocolate, right? But, I mean, am I really, am I consuming so much chocolate to the point that I can't pay my bills and I don't show up to work? No, right? So to t- st- take a step back and to answer your question, I'm not sure what you step up, but I was raised to think that drugs are bad. Just drugs, the whole class of drugs. My lovely, sweet mother, an immigrant from India, uh, who raised me and uh, my brother in Toronto, Canada, always said before I would go out with my friends, Lippy, be safe and don't do drugs. Because it was ingrained in her that drugs are bad. Right. And then, of course, I think you, you and I are both kind of old enough to remember the Nancy Reagan era of the Just Say No campaign. So the bottom line is that I think in society, there is this belief, this perception that drugs are bad and that what I have come to learn by working in, in, in the addiction field and working with people like you and many other colleagues in this space is that the reality is that the vast majority of people who use drugs do so recreationally, right? But just those people aren't making these news headlines uh, of the daily news, the evening news. Politicians aren't talking about the everyday people, people that you and I know, colleagues, professionals, all walks of life. They're taking a drink, they're using pot, using cocaine, using heroin. They're just doing so just, just to get high or for whatever reason. They're not making national headlines. So once I came to that realization, It just completely, really transformed the way that I perceive people who use drugs. And it kind of ties back to this concept of harm reduction, which is not a concept I really learned during medical school or during my medical training. This idea of like, let's keep people safe. Let's not judge people for their behaviors. Let's keep them safe. Let's uh, reduce their harm you know, and, and just respect them and ask them, what's your goal in, in life? Really medicine tends to be a pretty hierarchical and frankly, kind of judgmental field, right? We were told, and uh, you know, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, you need to listen to what I say. And we, I think you and I, you'll agree that in in our field with addiction medicine, You got to really just listen to the patient. I mean, you got to listen to the patient anyway, but particularly with addiction, because our patients are so judged and shamed uh, and they're so less prone to
1: be forthcoming. Have you ever had a moment on national television or similar, you know, national radio where you suddenly realized you had just educated someone on live media, whatever it was, you know, a host?
2: Yeah, um, sometimes the anchor, uh, or the reporter will say, wow, thank you, Dr. Roy. I, I, I never knew that. Sometimes they'll, like, just flat out say that, uh, on television or on the radio. And sometimes they'll say it to me afterwards. But yeah, it, sometimes it's not that obvious. It's not that overt. I, and I'm not surprised, right? Because again, this is all mostly been on the job training for me. Like I learned like everything that we're literally talking about now, I learned on the job, didn't learn it through med school residency. And I went to good institutions. It's just been a, re- a reflection of our medical curricula. But I, I, again, I'm hopeful that all of that's changing for the better.
1: You know, that's an important thing. You said you learned on the job how to speak with media. And before we turn um, to the intersection of COVID and addiction, I do want to ask how you prepare for a television show. When you know you're going to be on, but you don't have a lot of detail, like, how are you getting ready for that if you're going to be on for three minutes with some major show?
2: I'll just clarify. Like when I say all on the job training, I was referring to like addiction medicine. I didn't learn about addictions. So that's, that's what I, I meant. The media stuff. Are you kidding? I learned even less of that. <laughs> you know, they don't teach you that stuff at all in med- medical school, but yeah, that's such a great question. So often, like before I get asked to appear on a show, uh, the producers will say, Hey, Dr. Roy, these are some of the topics that we want to cover. They might send me a hyperlink to the topic and I'll read that article and then they'll often ask me, "Oh, doctor, are there specific topics that you want to discuss?" And oh, there almost always is. Um, so that way, I get to kind of steer the conversation. But ultimately, it's up to the producers of that segment and, and the anchor uh, or the host to kind of drive the conversation. To, to answer your question, though, it, it's actually a lot of work. It's so much preparation. I may appear on uh, on air for maybe anywhere from three to six, seven minutes. You know, the it flies by. It, it just flies by, at least for me, uh, it takes me a long time to prepare, A, because I don't want to look like an idiot, (laughs) but B, um, it's really important for me and I think for our profession as medical professionals to state whatever we can in the most accurate way possible. And with this coronavirus, there's quite literally something new being published almost every day. And I'm not somebody who can just wing it. Uh, I don't want to. I want to make sure that what I'm stating is as evidence-based as possible, as accurate as possible. And, um, and, And so that's really important to me, especially in this era of misinformation, right? As you know, Stefan, with anti vaxxers saying all these wildly crazy and inaccurate things. Um the public is confused enough as it is. They're worried enough as it is. The last thing I want to do is add to that confusion and anxiety and concern. So it's important to me to not only get the information right, but I write things down. Like I have I have notebooks, Stefan, so I'm always writing things down. I don't write down word for word what I'm gonna say, but I write down general topics and how I'm gonna phrase it. So Yeah, it's a lot of work.
1: That's extremely illuminating and it it resonates a little bit with a few times that I've been on TV as well. I wonder if you could share with us some of the key themes that you try to bring up when the overlap of addiction and COVID-19 are raised. When that topic comes up, what have been some of the most important things that you've been able to share over the last year?
2: Yeah, oh, I'm so glad you asked that. I, I want to point out there are certain um, anchors and hosts for whom this topic is always really important. I want to say Ali Velshi brings this up. He knows the work that I do. And, and then other anchors as well, Nicole Wallace, Joy Reid. I mean, there's certain anchors for whom this topic's really important. They know that it's real. I tie it back in on many different levels. I remind i mean nobody needs this reminder um, so many people w- have been at home they've lost their jobs um, they've lost family members uh, people that they know got suddenly sick and hospitalized people are disconnected from their friends their family and playing sports going to see broadway shows all of these things are things that you and i enjoy things that we all universally enjoy and crave so when you cut off those connections People kind of have it manifests in different ways, right? Some people get depressed, they get lonely, they get anxious. How do they treat that? How do they address that? For some people, they will go to substances, they'll they'll drink, they'll use drugs, they'll they'll develop other harmful behaviors to cope. All of this is 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 not surprising. And then when you think of like, say, healthcare workers, we've been on the front lines, nurses and doctors and respiratory therapists and counselors and other people have been on the front lines. And that ties directly to burnout. And, you know, in our profession, burnout was an epidemic before the, the coronavirus pandemic. And so we're seeing rising rates of, of substance use amongst healthcare workers as well. Um, burnout includes depression, includes anxiety, includes um, a lack of sleep. A, a detachment, a, a, an apathy, it all ties together. And so that's how I bring it up. Um, you know, things like unemployment, pandemic, these are all risk factors um, for leading to pain and trauma, which can be risk factors for, for substance use. And then I tie it back with also the way to treat it is through, through compassion, it's through, it's through empathy. It's by listening to people, being there for them. If you can't be there physically, you know, you pick up the phone, you call people, you you talk to people by Zoom. You know, and now that pe- more and more people are getting vaccinated, it's possible to meet in person with other fully vaccinated people, um, or just by mask and distancing. So there's ways to to be there uh, and to be supportive, but support systems is what's really important. So that's what I try to emphasize.
1: I have to say, as you were running through the overlaps of addiction and isolation and substance use and suffering. As your host on this podcast, I was feeling a progressive sense of depression. I was actually feeling sadder and sadder and sadder inside. And I was like, how am I gonna get out of this? And then luckily you just turned the corner right there and you started to describe how we try to address this. How do we make a difference? And actually you've lifted me right out. I mean, so I think I will testify admittedly as someone who knows you and could see your face during this uh, recording, the ability to speak about the things that can help us a bit, even if they cannot help us fully, actually matters an immense deal because I, I just experienced it.
2: Just so the viewers know, you and I, in full disclosure, have known each other for several years now. Yes. And you know me well, enough to know that I'm somebody who <laughs> is pretty positive, optimistic. I joke around. I'm a goofball. Uh, and you kind of have to be like, for the work that we do, where we, we are literally spending day in, day out, talking to men and women who are really, they're struggling, but they're also recovering. And you and I also know, we see a lot of happy stories. We see a lot of good things, right? Uh, I think we're very lucky and I, I'll speak for myself that I feel very privileged to do the work that, work that I do. I'm so honored to, uh, to be able to work with men and women, patients um, who are sharing their stories uh, and we are working together to, to get, get them better. You know, I often get asked, you know, they're like, oh, Lippy, what do you do? What are you doing for for self-care? Which I think is so vitally important. Um, look, I, I live in New York where literally one year ago today, the city had shut down. The state shut down. I was walking down Fifth Avenue Park, Madison, all these streets by myself, the middle of the road, taking pictures, thinking, take a picture of this moment, Lippy, it'll never happen again. It was a ghost town um new york was the epicenter of this pandemic in the world nobody was seeing more death and despair than new york it was a really hard time for me of course but but for everyone really around me so what do i what did i do then and what do i do now i do things that cheer me up that make me happy. I, I watch TV, I watch comedy, like Big Bang Theory. I watch things that make me laugh in some late night shows. I play piano, I um, I have wonderful friends and, and loving family that I connect with regularly, um, either online or by phone or, or in person safely and distanced. I cook, I bake, uh, I, I go out for a run, I exercise, I meditate. You know, there's lots of things that we can all do. You don't have to do all of those things, but find something that you enjoy. Uh, find a new activity, doing puzzles, reading, um, writing. So I do that as well. So there are a lot of things that we can do to, to get by and to relieve our, our, our stress and tension. But part of that is really support and connecting with other people. You know, Stephana, a, a common saying in our field is that um, the opposite of addiction isn't sobriety, it's connection, right? And this pandemic, as you know, has unfortunately disrupted that. But there are ways to, to reconnect with people.
1: First of all, that's incredibly encouraging. And I feel like I've gotten a little good counseling here right out of this uh, session. <laughs> when One of the forms of disconnection that we've struggled with over the last year is our politics. And I have realized that there is a political edge to the discussion of the rise in overdose during the time of the COVID-related Uh, social distancing protocols that applied across many communities. For some people, when we discuss that issue, it quickly shifts to the harms caused by uh, what you might call lockdowns or things that are quite a bit less than lockdowns. But they'll say, you know, well, that's it. You see, a health harm has been caused in the name of a health good. We were done wrong by the public health authorities. Does that come up for you in your media discussions at all? Or does it not.
2: Yeah. And this is where, you know, those little quick sound bites aren't helpful, right? Like a lot of things that we do in medicine, you can't just summarize it or explain it in like one or two minutes, right? So that, so that's, kind of an art and a science, right? So it's challenging, but this is why I try to put in the effort because let me tell you, when you're on air, you do not have the luxury of speaking for an hour. And besides the audience doesn't have that kind of attention span anyway. I don't even have that attention span. So to be able to explain something, in really short time, but to, to hit the key markers, it's hard. Um, but that's why I think I, I often repeat myself again and again and again, right? Like how many times, Stefan, have you heard public health folks on television, on the radio, on writing, say, wear a mask, practice distancing, right? We're still saying that. And part of that is to counter a lot of the misinformation from previous political leaders and even now current ones, uh, current, um, say, governors that are opening up their states widely. Um, they're not listening to public health guidance from the CDC or like from Dr. Fauci. So I think that's a major reason why we've had the, these networks, news networks have had like CNN, BBC, Fox and, and MSNBC, they've had so many doctors. It's because A, to explain what this coronavirus is, but also to counter the misinformation uh, and just flat out lies that were told by um the, the previous administration, to be honest. As a doctor, it's um, really frustrating to know that so many lives could have been saved if maybe our past president just sent one tweet saying, hey, wear a mask. Or back in January when he got the vaccine, at that time say, hey folks, I got the vaccine. If he had said to his 80 million followers say on Twitter, get the vaccine, it'll save your lives. It matters, words matter, leadership matters.
1: I appreciate that greatly. I'm almost done, but I think I, one question that I also feel is sort of resonating for me is I'm speaking as a white Jewish guy in an upper middle class, very bourgeois home in Alabama. I can't speak for how you exactly grew up. Neither of us are black, um, but there are a tremendous number of challenges that affect how we discuss social privilege, opportunity, potentially substance use, even though that spares no race and is relatively evenly distributed across race, but the consequences are often disproportionate. Are there moments when you, as a woman of Indian descent, wind up having to educate on racial disparities in our response to substance use? And how do you do that?
2: Short answer is yes. <laughs> yeah, I had a different upbringing from you, but also very different from a, a, a large portion of my patients. Growing up, the, the daughter of Indian immigrants in Toronto, Canada, who did most of her, all of her medical training in the Deep South, who also cared for veterans like you do now. So, you know, it's it's been a real learning curve. Um, but again, working in the field of addiction medicine and as the former chief of addiction for New York City jails, including Rikers Island, where I really saw the, the intersection of pain, trauma, incarceration, um, addiction, and race. It's been, a, a, again, none of these topics were taught to me during medical school or during residency, right? This has been all on-the-job training where I've learned from psychiatrists, from drug policy advocates, from judges, from lawyers, from people who've been in the community, but first and foremost, from my patients. People that are black and brown, Hispanic, mostly these men and women of color, particularly Black Americans, particularly those who grew up in the '80s in the Bronx who were arrested for their crack cocaine use. Meanwhile, the the one the folks that were using crack cocaine or cocaine on Wall Street never touched. Right. So, so there's um, you, you just gotta address it. You gotta say, hey, you know we screwed up. In, in the medical community, government, policy, elected officials, we collectively as society screwed up. We're trying to learn from our mistakes and make sure we don't repeat these same mistakes. And everybody deserves evidence-based treatment and care. Uh, and those that are disproportionately impacted, we see you, we hear you, and we're going to make sure you get the help that you need and deserve. It's about time that that happens.
1: Yeah, when I hear from you, I mean, we can't purport to represent communities we're not in, but what I hear from you is extremely direct language. I don't think I think you cut to the chase uh, with strength, which is incredibly helpful both on this issue and all of the prior issues we've discussed. Generally, it can be a tendency for me sometimes, but a lot of academics to sort of dance around things and to try to entertain the discussion very politely and very subtly. And actually, both from watching you on television and from this conversation, uh, you're an expert in being direct and it's quite a strength actually.
2: Well, I appreciate you saying that, Stefan. It has, again, taken me years. And to say that I, this idea of being an expert, I, it makes me very uncomfortable because I'm, you know, when I was in grad school at University of Toronto, I remember a physiology, he was a hematologist, a hematology expert. And what he said was, well, you know what they say about experts? Experts are people who know more and more about less and less. So, um, you know, it always makes me nervous to have that title, but, Yes, I'm trying to be direct. I think being on media has taught me to just kind of cut to the chase. But at the same time, when it comes to meeting with patients, what I've learned is just kind of shut up and listen. Just and as doctors, we're so accustomed to giving advice, right? We're the ones talking. We're the ones taking up space. But in this field, when it comes to addiction and now with the pandemic, just sit back and listen, let other people speak. And we need to, that way you're going to gain their trust right? Listen without judgment and with compassion, with empathy, particularly uh, to people who come from communities where we're not from, right? So it's my job and my responsibility to learn from them. Uh, and I think you probably learned this in medical school, just like I did uh, on day one, in fact, your number one teacher is your patient. So, and in my case, when I was on, on, on television and media, my patients, so to speak, are, are the audience, right? So, Listen to them, listen to what they have to say, and then you you, you tailor your advice based on that.
1: Uh, This has been incredibly instructive. My take-home messages currently are, um, to start at the back, the value of speaking directly and not beating about the bush too much, listening, the importance of naming and discussing the stigmatizing assumptions that we often apply in the case of addiction the value of repeating key public health messages, even if it seems redundant, to go ahead and say them again, particularly if the information environment is itself confused. And I I think a lot of people will hear from this as well, that part of the job you've taken on in communicating to the public is a lot of work in preparing to communicate to the public, and that without that, you can't be effective. Uh, So I'm really inspired and thankful to you for the chance to have this interview and certainly want to ask if you have any last words you want to share.
2: Well, Stefana, takes a village, uh, as you know, right? I mean, so I'm, I, I'm not alone. I, I'm so grateful and so thankful to be part of a community, a much, much larger community where I'm constantly learning, learning and sharing, learning and sharing. So I think it's my responsibility to get my information as accurate as possible, and then to share it. So it's a privilege, but the work continues and we just have to keep at it. You know, right now, you know, where it's Hunter Biden's book is coming out, but right now it's also the murder trial of, of former police officer, Derek Chauvin, about George Floyd, who also has been very, had his girlfriend was very open about his struggles with opiate addiction. Um, and then rapper DMX, who's now in a vegetative state, we think from a drug overdose. My point is that it's affecting all people from all walks of life. Addiction transcends age, race, culture, borders. So uh, let's get people the care that they need need and deserve.
1: So as part of the shared community of people who we hope listen to this podcast and also the immersive community, I want to say thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Stefan. It's been an honor.
0: That was Dr. Lippy Roy in conversation with Dr. Stefan Kertes on the topic of leveraging media and medicine to reduce stigma and improve access to addiction treatment. Thanks so much for
1: listening. To learn more about the ATTC Network and the Association for Multidisciplinary Education and Research in Substance Use and Addiction, please visit our websites at attcnetwork.org and immersa.org. For a transcript of this podcast and other related resources, please visit the ATTC Network website. This podcast is supported by funding from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Its contents are solely the responsibility of the authors and do not necessarily represent the official views of HHS or SAMHSA. Information shared and views expressed reflect the speaker's best understanding of science or promising practices at the time of recording and should not be seen as directives. Content related to privacy and security in 42 CFR Part 2 presented during these sessions should not be construed as legal advice, and listeners are directed to discuss recommendations with their agency's legal counsel. Thank you for tuning in today. We hope that you'll join us again.